Hi, everyone. Welcome to Let's Talk About Skills, Baby. I am your host, Kelly Ryan Bailey. Each week, I chat with inspiring visionaries about the skills that make them successful, how they developed those skills, and their innovative approaches to improving skills-based hiring and learning around the world. Come learn what skills help you live your best life. This week, I have two guests, actually, the first time that I've had two guests on Let's Talk About Skills Baby. So I'm really excited to welcome Caitlin Barron and Dominic Register. And we're actually here for a special bonus episode that is kicking off the beginning of Karanga's Q4 series of online SEL activities. SEL, just in case anyone is not familiar, social and emotional learning. Karanga is the Global Alliance for SEL and Life Skills with a mission to inspire and equip practitioners, policymakers, and researchers from around the world to promote quality and equitable SEL and life skills. This series of online activities and it is an initiative that Karanga has been running each quarter during 2020 and will continue in 2021. This week, there will be programs in Latin America on the 10th of December, and Karanga is also the official knowledge partner for the major UNESCO Mohatma Gandhi Institute for Education and Peace VTech conference, which is beginning on Friday, the 11th of December. There's also more, um, so you can find more information and register for these virtual events at karanga.org. I'd also like to quickly introduce our guests. Thank you guys for bearing with me here for a moment. <laughs> so let me start off with Caitlin. Caitlin Barron is the inaugural CEO of the Luminos Fund, a philanthropic initiative dedicated to advancing education innovations for the world's most vulnerable children. Luminos has enabled, wow, uh, over 100,000 children to have a second chance at education. Luminos believes in the power of creative pedagogies and activity-based education to transform children's lives, even in the poorest corners of the world. Caitlin spent the previous decade as a senior leader within the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation, helping to grow the organization to steward over a billion dollars in charitable giving. She founded and led the foundation's office in South Africa and built um, MSDF's impact investing portfolio. She graduated from UCLA in political science and is pursuing an, exec an executive master's with the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Welcome, Caitlin. And Dominic, Dominic Register joined Salzburg Global Seminar as a program director in March 2017. He is responsible for designing, developing, and implementing programs on education, conservation, and the future of cities. Prior to this, he worked for the British Council for 14 years, primarily on projects connected to global citizenship education, teacher professional development, education collaboration, and internationalism in education. He has an MA in Chinese Studies from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and an MA in Education and International Development from University College London Institute of Education. Dominic is a founding member, member of the Executive Committee for Karanga, which is, as I mentioned, the Global Alliance for Social, Emotional Learning and Life Skills. And he also is the co-editor of two new books, Education Disrupted, Education Reimagined, Thoughts and Responses from Education's Frontline During the COVID Pandemic and Beyond, and Social and Emotional Learning Across the Mediterranean, Cross-Cultural Perspectives and Approaches. Thank you guys so much for joining me today, and thank you for bearing with me while I get to gush on your accomplishments. <laughs> So I thought, Dominic, if you don't mind kicking us off and just talking a little bit, sharing with us a little bit more about Karanga and how that came to be and what the focus is. Sure. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to thank you for having us both. And it's great to be here. Um, Karanga started, it grew out of work that we'd been doing at Salzburg Global Seminar for a couple of years. where so we had focused much of our education work on social and emotional learning. And when we decided that we would really try and double down on social and emotional learning in Salzburg, that, that analysis grew out of a, a kind of supply and demand 
hypothesis that we developed where we felt and we tested this with friends and colleagues in ministries of education and UN development and UN agencies and different development banks and NGOs um, that social and emotional learning had the potential to become a really major education reform trajectory mm-hmm. um, because it was increasingly a core part of the solution to a lot of different education challenges. So you had all sorts of different stakeholders around the world who were looking to bring about changes in the education systems that they were most familiar with or working with um, from a variety of different starting points. And the kinds of change that they wanted coalesced in many, many cases around a sort of core set of social and emotional learning skills and behaviors and capabilities. So, so there's a really compelling economic argument around this that you know one of the challenges with education systems today is that they're not preparing um, the workforce of tomorrow to do the kinds of jobs that won't be automated or outsourced to AI in the near future. Well, you know, the kinds of skills that feature in every analysis of the sorts of skills that you'll need in order to do those kinds of jobs map really closely onto core social and emotional learning skills and competencies. So these are the, the kinds of skills which still, you know, uniquely define us as being human, the skills that can't yet be outsourced to computers. Completely separately to that, there's a compelling mental health and well-being entry point into this where you know you've got um the world health organization predicts that and this is pre-pandemic analysis that based on current trends by 2030 depression will be the single largest cause of adolescent illness and disability globally um there's a compelling evidence base that shows how the early introduction of social and emotional learning strategies and techniques in the classroom can help young people grow up with a kind of mental architecture that will let them find their way through or around later life mental health challenges. Separately to that, there's, you know, the correlation between um, SEL and greater equity of education outcomes. So one of the, I think one of the most interesting pieces of research that I've read in recent years is um, you know about the the consistency of the academic uplift that SEL interventions have on students growing up in disadvantage and however that disadvantage manifests itself so whether it is um, inner city poverty whether it is growing up in a post-conflict context whether it is because you've become a refugee um, any other manifestation of disadvantage um, teachers who are using social and emotional learning techniques and strategies who've been able to develop an SEL friendly learning environment well their students will um, you know will do academically better as well as all the other benefits and, and there are ma- many many other points in of entry into this conversation so you had SEL as you know a core part of the solution to lots of big societal challenges that were facing countries all around the world um, what we heard and so that was the demand side of it. On the supply side, what we had really consistently was that there were three broad um, roadblocks in different education systems that prevented the system from pivoting towards SEL. So there's a set of challenges around teacher preparation and wider adult understanding of the topic that SEL just doesn't feature in the vast majority of pre or in-service teacher training opportunities. Mm-hmm. Separately to that, there's a set of challenges around curriculum design. Um, and thirdly, there's a set of challenges around measurement and assessment. Mm-hmm. And what we had been doing in Salzburg was bringing together policymakers, researchers, practitioners, um, education stakeholders who were doing interesting work in this space and had great insights to share about what worked in their context um, and to try and build a kind of more connected community of like-minded, reform-orientated practitioners, researchers, policymakers um, who were all focusing on SEL. Um, And Karanga grew out of that. We thought it would be a really good expansion of that work to think about how we could um, take what we do in Salzburg but make it on a much larger global scale um, and so that that project started, Karanga started really in the around Easter time in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been building together a really interesting network of fantastic organizations from around the world who are doing great SEL work and helping them share you know, their insight and practice and what works for them, but then also what doesn't work and how can we collectively look for solutions to the challenges that we're all individually facing in this work that may have been a longer answer than you're no that was fantastic I mean you know the thing is that if any you know for everyone who's listening you probably know immediately now (laughs) why we're having this conversation on this platform because this is all the things that I love and care about so deeply and so it's um 
it's just fantastic, this transformation that's happened over this such short period of time and the group that you've pulled together, it's just, it's quite amazing. Um, and I think now because of COVID, it's like so prevalent, um, you know, not this wasn't the awareness of this, I think was like incrementally building, right? But now all of a sudden it's in everyone's face and it's in everyone's face in a huge collective way that we've never experienced before. And I think I love that in a certain sense because it's really creating such huge momentum. So um, I really applaud you guys for all of this work oh, and getting this set up. No, I mean, it's been, it would be a really, it would be an interesting legacy of 2020 if in amongst all of the, you know, the chaos and, and grief and trauma and disruption that the pandemic has caused, if, if for education historians looking back Right. Um, on 2020 in the future saw it as actually the beginning of a really significant education revolution or or the acceleration of trends that had been kind of bubbling away in different educate different right. corners of education systems for a while um yeah. and i think you know social and emotional learning does seem to be featuring more and more in conversations you know from terms of parental understanding of its importance and the role that school can play in helping um, children develop these skills and competences right through to you know the attention that teachers and head teachers and policymakers are beginning to pay to it as well. Completely, completely. So Caitlin, tell us like how did you get involved in this type of work and and how did that sort of begin your journey with Luminos Fund? Well, I think thanks so much for uh, the entry point and, and thanks so much to Dominic for bringing us into this conversation. Luminos are relatively new members of the Karanga Network and in the short time that we've been a part of this community, we've just found it to be such a rich exchange and such um, a unique opportunity to advance critically important elements of the education journey that are, that are often hard to pin down. Um, and so having the chance to be a part of this network has just been hugely enriching for my colleagues and I. So it's great to be here together with both of you. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. So we would love to hear more about um, Luminos and like mm. what the focus of it, because I mean, everything that I, that you have shared with me so far, I am, I know the, the listeners would love to hear just as much as, as I've been interested in this particular process. Like where did this idea come from? Um, I know you have a lot of work in, you know, foundation work, grant work, but mm -hmm. like, how, where did this all stem from? So Luminos is dedicated to providing a second chance at education to children who have missed out on their first chance. And we work across Africa and the Middle East with children who are either from very poor families or from families that have been displaced by conflict. Um, we, we support in particular somewhat older kids, 10 or 11 years old, who've never been to school. And in one rich intensive year, we enable them to cover the first three grades of school curriculum so that they're ready to mainstream back into their local village school together with kids their own age. Wow. Um, and this work is vitally important to a large number of countries in the world that have not yet solved the challenge of, of giving every child an access to a basic education. So one of the countries we work in, Liberia and West Africa, um, more than half the primary school age children in the country never get the chance to go to school. Um, the reason we work specifically with 10 and 11 year olds is because in the geographies where we operate, 11, 11 12 is really the end of childhood. And in these contexts, it's really children's last chance to get an education. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, we've seen just enormous commitment on the part of children and parents to really making the most of, of this opportunity. So 90% of the kids who start our program successfully transition back to their local public school. And what we've seen through a variety of evaluations is as many as six years later, um, children are still progressing through school at better rates than their peers. And most importantly, um, that they have a sustained greater happiness in the classroom, that they have a stronger sense of self-efficacy, and that they have higher aspirations for the future. And so it's actually, it's been a process of reflecting on our evaluation data, which 
quite honestly, was a sort of holistic evaluation of a pretty academic program, mm -hmm. but that that evaluation revealed all sorts of non-cognitive skills that were being built through the program that were actually critical to children's journeys, not just their success in our program, but their success in, in school going forward. And, and that really opened our eyes to, to the importance of actually unpacking sort of what are the unique elements of what's happening in our classrooms that's, you know, making these kind of transformative impacts for, for kids possible. Um, and that's a large part of what, what drew us to Karanka. So did you, as you started unpacking that information, is that when, I'm curious now, if you really found Karanga after you already started to gear towards more of this like SEL focus, or was that, did that happen almost at the same time? I mean, almost at the same time to a certain extent, you know, so, so it's interesting. I mean, if you, you stand in one of our classrooms, you know that you're standing in a very different learning environment than typically exists in the countries we operate in. So we're, we're in very remote areas. I mean, I mean, Liberia, one of the countries we work in, only 12% of the country has electricity, right? So the vast majority of the country has no basic access to electricity. So our typical classroom will be mud walls. There'll be a single door and a single window, which are propped open. And that sunlight coming in from the outside is, is really the sole source of light in the classroom. But every surface on that classroom will be covered with artwork and learning materials created by the children themselves, using materials that are found in the community around them, making use of every, every aspect of local society as a part of the teaching and learning context and environment. So I think, you know, just standing in one of our classrooms, you know, you're in a different environment. Mm -hmm. um, but then beyond that, you sort of, you watch what's happening. So you can see that, you know, children are doing a certain amount of work on their own at their desk. That's a critical part of the learning process, but they're as likely to be up at the front of the class, teaching a part of the class themselves, working in pairs, stronger students, helping weaker students, um, using song, dance, music, rhythm, and handmade manipulatives to really deliver what we call a five senses learning environment. Mm -hmm. Um, and we embarked on all, we embarked on all of those teaching techniques purely because they achieve better academic outcomes, you know, so we're able to take children who at the beginning of the year can't recognize all the letters in the alphabet by the end of our 10 month program are reading extended passages of text like we're able to really rapidly accelerate children's academic outcomes in a short period of time. But we knew for children to learn that much, that quickly, learning was gonna to have to be fun. Um, and we have a really long school day in pretty hot environments <laughs> where uh, even the best of us would struggle to stay fully engaged um, if it wasn't what we call a joyful learning environment. And so we really looked at, at this sort of five senses learning model purely as a way to achieve very, sort of traditional narrow academic outcomes. And we've been absolutely thrilled that we've been able to achieve that. But one of the things we've come to learn over time, I mean, the academic outcomes are what enable the children to be eligible to enroll in public school, right? Yeah. What sustains them over time, what enables them to not just be in school, but actually get through school and succeed mm -hmm. are the non-cognitive skills. Um, and so it's just been a, you know, the Karanga community has been just a really resource rich area mm -hmm. for just sort of unpacking and teasing out, you know, in our program, it's not like from 10 to 10, 15, we do socio-emotional learning, right? Like there's, there's no like unit in, in the day's calendar. It's really baked into the ethos. And so it, it's been so helpful to actually dive deep on that in particular as we're an organization that's that's looking to scale and grow quickly, right? So unless you have a clear-eyed view of essentially like, you know, what is your secret formula? <laughs> right. um, then it's hard to know that you're you're growing with those core components of excellence. Mm -hmm. So I mean, and, and Dominic, feel free to jump in here too, but I'm curious, like some of these resources from Karanga that have been extremely helpful in sort of navigating this and trying to figure that out, for Luminos? 
And if you guys have any like in particular resources that you've been accessing or, or folks that you've been working with. What was, what was really brilliant about the, the timing, Caitlin, of when Luminos got in touch um, with Karenka was almost, I think in, in about the same month, um, we'd also started talking to Patrice Juha uh, from the Martha Juha Education Foundation in Liberia. And, and you guys were kind of beginning to adapt some of the insight from the Ethiopia program for Liberia. And so we, you know, we suddenly were in touch with two really influential organizations, both working in West Africa. And, you know, his, historically, I think there's been more attention paid to social and emotional learning in some of the recent East Africa education reform initiatives mm-hmm. than there has in West Africa. And so it's great for Karanga to be able to, you know, to, to work with both of your organizations in a small way, but also connect you with other people in our ecosystem who are doing really great SEL work and have insight around teaching, you know, the teacher training piece. The other thing which I think is really interesting about what you were just saying is um, the kind of correlation between happiness and, and student happiness in the classroom and, and academic attainment. And, um, you know, there's, there's fantastic data now from, um, uh, from the Delhi government around their happiness curriculum. Um, and you know the the academic the increase in academic attainment that all children in there um, in, who have been part of the happiness curriculum have been able to achieve because of this adjustment in how teachers interact with students and the kind of introduction of some mindfulness practices at the beginning of the day that help with student focus um, and you know it's very similar in a different context the um, the Aspen Institute in the mm-hmm. U.S. put out an amazing three-year study last year. Um, called the National, or organized by the National Commission for Academic and Social and Emotional uh, Development and came to very similar conclusion mm. uh, across all the US schools and districts that they'd looked at. There is a really clear correlation between happiness and how good you feel about yourself in the classroom and the academic results that you get. So it just feel like that that's an idea which is becoming much more mainstream mm-hmm. now. And the fact that Luminos is able to do it in this accelerated learning environment. You know, one of the, like I was saying at the very beginning, one of the challenges that, that we had three or four years ago when we started looking at SEL was you know, around curriculum design mm. and that curricula are you know, already too crowded in almost every education system. So mm-hmm. how do you find the space to introduce something new? Um, and the fact that you've been able to do it so effectively in what is already a condensed, accelerated mm-hmm. learning environment, I think is really inspirational for many other education practitioners around the world. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think one of the, the themes that Dominic and his colleagues have really encouraged us to look closely at is sort of what are the aspects of, of teacher development and training that are then carrying through to the classroom. Um, And I think that's been really, that's been interesting for us to go back and unpack. And, you know, I I would say one thing that that comes to the fore with any evaluator who observes our teacher training is is first off, the the training model emulates the classroom model. Mm -hmm. So there's relatively little time with an instructor from our side standing at the front of the class sort of lecturing a set of teachers. There's a, there's a small bit of instruction and then right, teachers are in the task, like show me how you would teach a child to do this. Mm-hmm. Show me how, how you would make uh, you know, two digit addition fun. Mm-hmm. And if, if carrying wasn't working for a child, what's an alternative? You know, show me how you would introduce sight words as opposed to phonic based reading. Um, and so very, very quickly, you know, teachers are up out of their seats and actually engaged in role modeling, the kind of teaching that they'll be asked to do when they're in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, uh, one of the other, you know, two other critical things we, we've seen in our teacher training, um, we emphasize really, really early the importance of creating a safe environment for making mistakes mm-hmm. um, and a safe environment for calling each other on mistakes. One of the, when we're doing classroom observations on our teachers and assessing their capabilities, one of the things we always look for is how do they react when a child corrects them? Hmm. Um, because it's a, it's a great test, right? It's a great right. test of both the, the teacher's confidence in their own underlying abilities and their understanding of the power dynamic in the classroom and the degree to which they, they need to take the lead on unpacking that and bringing themselves to the level of the child. Um, 
And then the last piece of the puzzle is that we just really, really emphasize in a variety of different ways, the essential truth that, that every child can learn. Mm-hmm. And that's so simple, it almost sounds trite, but in the context that we operate on, like that's not a foregone conclusion. I mean, if I take, uh, you know, Liberia is a country where half the children never start school. Ethiopia is a country where increasingly almost everyone starts school, but by the end of grade one, almost 20% have dropped out. So the children in our program in Ethiopia are for the most part children who've tried schooling and been seen to fail, right? So there's a- drop out out of curiosity? Um, it's, it's a, it's a push pull. So some of it is crisis strikes the family, the death of a parent, the failure of a crop, um, just a family that is sort of on the edge between poverty and destitution slips into destitution. Um, but some of it is, is perception that the child is struggling and perhaps a brother or a sister seems to have taken to school more easily. And someone is needed at home to work on the farm or care for an ailing grandparent. And so the family makes a hard calculus that mm-hmm. some children will receive an education and others won't. Okay. So what that means in that context is that our teachers need to be engaged in a fundamental change in, in student self-perception and in parents' perception of their child. And one of the key ways that we do that is by encouraging every one of our teachers to own and share their own learning journey and narrative and the degree to which they struggled and how hard it was for them to enter the class and why their personal story brings them to take on this role at this point in time. And they, one of our um, one of our team members in Liberia, a, a man named Emmanuel, mm-hmm. um, started school when he was 17. And he started school when he was 17 because there was a civil war in Liberia for 20 years. And there simply wasn't an operating school any sooner than that. And what that meant was that he had to sit in a classroom alongside children who were six, seven, eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, children who, like children everywhere, never missed an opportunity to taunt and tease and, and used to refer to him as Grandpa ABC. But he persisted. He endured. By age 27, he'd completed high school. And a high school education is essentially the qualification we need in order to teach in our program. Mm-hmm. And every year when Emmanuel enters the classroom, he begins by telling the children his story, what he struggled with, what it meant to him, what it means to him now to have an education. Mm. And the degree to which that just is just such a powerful motivator for the kids in the class. Um, And in order to do that, like we have to, as much as we have to provide a safe environment for kids, we have to provide a safe environment for teachers as right. well. I mean, I think it takes a lot to ask teachers to be that vulnerable, mm-hmm. especially in the context that we're working in, which are fairly traditional. And can, the teacher is sort of formal and kind of up here and the kids are down here. Yeah. And so, um, but it has just been, it's just been such a beautiful privilege, I think, to, for us to see not just the degree to which the children bloom in the classroom, but the degree to which the, the teachers are, are more fully themselves when right. they're able to embrace their own struggles as a part of their narrative. I'm just also imagining this impact, like the greater impact on that community because of changing even just like a small subset of lives because that reverberates out. And of course, I'm assuming that you're going to have to figure, you, you figure out how to communicate with parents, especially after that story you mentioned where you know 20% of students in Ethiopia are leaving um, at first grade level, um, if parents are making these kinds of decisions, I'm assuming there's a conversation that has to happen at that level as well. How do you, uh, you know, how do you incorporate that into, it's so interesting to me when we talk about education, right? There's like this one piece that we assume it's like, oh, what's happening in the classroom, but it's truly not. Yeah. 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 And I I mean, I think one of the biggest things we've been able to do, Kelly, is just invite parents into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, keep in mind, most of our students are first generation readers. Okay. So most of their parents are completely illiterate. And mm-hmm. um, school is not necessarily a hospitable environment 
I mean, in, in our world or in their world, right? So I think we feel like we have to go to pretty great lengths to actually make them feel like an integrated part of the classroom. So we make sure every mother is, or uh, caregiver is in the classroom once a month at least. And one of the beautiful things about our program, because it's an accelerated learning program, children are actually progressing through the curriculum quite quickly. So what that means is that actually month on month, even if you yourself are illiterate, it's it's just obvious that you can see my child is not only knows the alphabet, now they're reading three letter words, now they're reading full sentences. And we really make that, um, just make it a, a very, very welcoming environment. Um, we also work with sort of perceived leaders in the local community to actually make them a part of the teaching process. So we'll work with um, people from the marketplace to come in and do uh, mini fruit stalls in the classroom and use that as an opportunity to demonstrate mental math. Um, you know, we'll work with the village chief to have him in the classroom, to have him endorsing the work that he's doing about the importance. You know, no one of these elements alone is, you know, there's no, there's no silver bullet here, Mm -hmm. but I think one of the things that we have really emphasized is that even though we are teaching, you know, children who are in essence, the first readers in their family, we have to be presenting education as something that has sprung organically from the community that can't be perceived as something that's come from outside. So, you know, we, for, we work only with a, we work with a local publisher. So we have books that are written in context with children who look like the children in the classroom. Um, We work with actually a very traditional um, African board game called Awari, which you may have seen, it sort of has like 16 little holes carved in the ground and there's little beads you move back and forth. Great way for practicing mental math. so no one of these things in, in isolation is the whole story, but that, that idea of basically taking, what do we know globally about what works for kids and, and what works for kids who've struggled? And how do we take that research knowledge and innovation and just completely reimagine it in yeah. situ um, in a way that just seems like a sort of organic part of the communities that we're in? Yeah. Well, you think back so many years and the way that children were raised was very community-based. Um, you know, it wasn't until, right, like not that long ago that education became this sort of structured process with, you know, this more like create a box and we're going to sit in it <laughs> situation. Um, but when you think of it that way, it, it, it really makes so much sense. And especially, you know, you want to make sure that these community, like they're feeling it. And I'm sure that there's, I can only imagine as a parent, you know, that that is you're so proud of your child and seeing them and um, and maybe even they're bringing that back to you and you're learning. And so the, the huge changes that are happening there. So in this description of, you know, working with the community, I wonder too, like, how do you recruit and understand who are going to be like teachers or do you call them teachers? I'm not even sure if that's the... <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and it varies a little bit from place to place. But I think teacher is the easiest terminology. Okay. You know, even if the sort of technical qualification is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with high potential young people from the communities that we're in who right. who have a passion for children and have a passion for teaching, but don't necessarily have any particular qualification. So okay. our our minimum threshold is you have to have completed 10th grade. Okay. Um, and in the, most of the countries we work in, there's a sort of big exit exam at the end. It's a version of a high school graduation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we, a lot of the interview with prospective teachers actually comes down to encouraging them to teach uh, an impromptu class and challenging them to actually teach to the instructors. How would you present this to children? How would you present that? And a lot of what we'll do is then give them a mini lesson on how we'd like to teach and Mm -hmm. then see how quickly they can take that in, incorporate it with their own ideas and bring back, you know, a model to us that is sort of leveraging the key principles that we've introduced, but bringing their own creativity to 
mm-hmm. ask as well. Um, and we always, then we, we, um, we put teachers through an intensive three week training program at the beginning of the year. We always take a few more teachers into that training program than we actually need. Okay. Because inevitably, I mean, this, this program is really hard work. I mean, teachers are in the classroom seven plus hours a day, actually in Ethiopia, we do a half day on uh, Saturday as well. And so just the, there is a certain amount of winnowing out over time. Sure. Um, And then I think the most important thing we do is, is in classroom coaching. So training is all well and good, but you know, teaching is an action sport. And, um, you know, we, we, we have these intensive three weeks of training. We send our teachers off into the classroom. They're good to go for a few weeks, you know, and then they, they get into the next phase in the curriculum and it's like, okay, now I'm getting stuck. Actually, I'm, I'm not managing to, you know, advance the children through more complex phonics. I'm not managing to, you know, explain um, how to symbolize mathematics. And so we have a coach in the classroom every single week. With okay. Is helping them in the moment troubleshoot. Like, here's here's another idea. You're trying this. Why don't you try this teaching of D? Why don't you try this one? Knowing that there's never going to be just one path for presenting core concepts to kids. Um, and those coaches are drawn from the best of the teachers from the previous year. Okay. That's it now. And are they in, um, cause I'm wondering if there has been a slight adjustment. I'm assuming originally these people were on the ground in the community live yes. there in person. Is that still the case now? Um, so the, the coaches are, are still living in the communities okay. that they're in, but they all now sort of work on a circuit and, and go from school to school in their region. Okay. Really is interesting. The, the vulnerability that the teachers have to show in the classroom is that, um, is that empowering over time or is that a challenge at the beginning? Because it's upending, isn't it, in many ways, the traditional role of the teacher in many, many societies around the world. It, 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 no, it really is, Dominic. And I think that we couldn't possibly sort of cut into that area if we didn't have a cohort of experienced teachers who themselves were willing to lead that conversation you know, with our trainees. So, I mean, that's not, you know, I wouldn't dream of sort of flying off to Ethiopia and telling a bunch of Ethiopian teachers they should be vulnerable in the classroom, right? Like, what do I actually know about their cultural context and what it means to be a teacher where they're from, right? But our more experienced teachers who've seen time and time again that children excel when they can identify with the teacher, when you remove that gap between the two, that's what drives student excellence and outcomes is, is I think that, yeah, I mean, if the story wasn't being told by the senior teachers themselves, I think, I think we'd, we'd really be lost. So I imagine the, the relationships that it helps develop between teachers working together and that kind of, you know, teacher, teacher cooperation is a really good indicator as well of academic outcomes. And there was an amazing piece of research that Rand did earlier this year in the, in the kind of first three months of the pandemic. And one of the things they found in US schools, in US high schools, was, was that schools that had a high culture of teacher cooperation pre-pandemic consistently were better able to support their students and the communities when schools were shut down. And you know, and so thinking about ways in which you can create that culture, because it was a really good um, predictor of, you know, of how well you, how well the institution coped during a period of great adversity. And you think about the, you know, the way that you're structuring the, the mentoring and the coaching component with all the schools that you work with, that that's inbuilt, isn't it? There's a culture of teacher cooperation. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, one of the nice things about sort of back to school programs if you do them well, mm-hmm. is that you have a very clear mission and you don't have a lot of time to waste. So <laughs> um, that sort of shared sense of purpose is I think it is just very clear and very strong. I mean, you know, I think if you're building, when you have a really clear goal like that and that you're all racing against together, I think um, if you do it right, that can be a really galvanizing. Um, effect for teachers. Um, 
you know, similarly, every quarter we bring everyone together for, for what we call problem solving sessions. And we just ask everyone to unpack like what is not working in the classroom and, you know, what are you struggling with? And you get a whole bunch of peer to peer uh, feedback and learning that comes out of that. But equally, I think what we do is put we, the program leadership, you know, put ourselves on the block and like, what have we presented to you from a right. you know pedagogic curriculum standpoint that is just like simply not working. Not like working. that was a lovely idea, but no, it's not happening in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, making that a sort of a safe place for, for them to give complex feedback, even to the program designers is, is, is a part of emulating, you know, that, that idea of, of safe space for, for feedback. Mm -hmm. And that, that making mistakes is part of the learning journey. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about, Caitlin, how you're seeing the next phase of Luminos, because it sounds like, at least from my perspective, that you have this really amazing program in place and you mentioned scaling. So I'm curious what you see as like the next, the next steps. So it's a it's an amazing moment, Kelly. Right? I mean, we we founded Luminos to help the last one in ten children in the world who are still kept out of primary school get access to a basic education. And then at the height of the pandemic, nine out of ten children around the world were out of school. And current estimates suggest that that at twenty four million children who were in school previously will not be coming back. Um, so we have sort of before us and just an enormous landscape of, of projected dropouts. And so, I mean, I think there's a clear imperative for an organization like mine in this moment. One is for us to run ahead and grow and scale what we're doing today as much as possible. So we're looking to, you know, dramatically scale up the size of our programs in Liberia and Ethiopia, also looking to open in a new African country in 2021. But equally, um, we feel like it's a really important time for us to be looking for opportunities to meaningfully share out what we've learned and what we know about what we do with, with as many nonprofits and government agencies as I possible. I was just thinking the same thing, Caitlin. I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many, I mean, I realize there's, this is happening right across the world, but there are so many other places I can think of. And even from a more traditional education standpoint that what you've learned in this process could be so helpful. Yeah, no, I, I think, and Kelly, we completely agree, right? Like we we can scale as fast as we can possibly scale. We can't actually be everywhere that right. we're interested. Um, and we've always been very open source about our work. So we have a whole bunch of nonprofits attend our annual teacher training program with whom we don't directly work, but they basically want to come and learn the model mm -hmm. and implement it on their own. And that's been one sort of, I mean, helpful, but like fairly low tech way of, of disseminating the thinking. We have a, a real project ahead of us actually to, to distill out and synthesize uh, the program and the model in a way that makes it easier to share in a sort of beyond the person by person yeah. capacity, which is really what we've done until now. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think that's both the challenge and the opportunity ahead of us. That's going to be, that's going to be great. And I'm sure like through Karanga too, the great thing is Dominic, that you, just like you were describing the connection you made there in, um, in Liberia, as a, if that's, if I had that correct, um, with Luminos and that community organization, I'm sure that there are so many others in the Alliance that could find this information helpful. Just when you were talking, Caitlin, I was making notes about ways in which I hope, you know, Karanga can help with that. Because Karanga, we all, what we always wanted for it when we started it was for it to support the ecosystem and for it to be an alliance and, you know, help make those networks between organizations that have got great insights to share. So I think there's, there's several ideas I've got about ways in which I hope we can help, you know, share your insights and your learning across similar, similarly minded or intentioned NGOs and organizations that are working in different contexts. Well, and I think that's one of the many reasons we've been so excited to be a part of the network. And I also, I also had a few things in mind too. There were some um, school organizations that have reached out recently that 
you know, this was like top of mind conversation and this sort of transformation um, of education at various levels too, not only K through 12. So um, I, I feel like there's a lot there, really excited for where this is going. So we're coming up to the end of our time now, and I thought I would give space for each of you to, you know, let us know um, some parting thoughts. I'll leave it completely open-ended, which sometimes is scary, but based on knowing you both, um, I think you're going to be fine. <laughs> Kelly may be on pause, but Dominic, did you have parting thoughts? <laughs> oh. Um. Yeah, I'm happy to go first and then uh, to, to Caitlin. Um, so I suppose like, like I was trying to say at the very beginning, it, it feels like across 2020, the attention and importance that is attached to social and emotional learning, both as a, a way of kind of managing the classroom as a component of the curriculum and also the skills that, that really great teachers and school leaders are using more and more to help the young people whose education they're responsible for be able to, to graduate or move on to the next phase of their education with those skills because these are so important for the the future of all of our societies and it feels like you know 2020 is a landmark moment in in that narrative um so you know we would love we at Karanga would love to hear from any of of your listeners kelly who would like to learn more about this who are, are themselves involved in social and emotional learning work and would like to connect with Karanga because the, there is a great window of opportunity, I think, for these reform-oriented conversations, but it won't be open forever. So there's a, there's a need to move reasonably quickly and there is enough collective insight and collective intelligence across you know, everyone who's doing great work in this space for us to be able to develop like, you know, good evidence-based reform policies um, that, that can help you know, cement this and and um, bake it into all of our education systems around the world. Because it feels like something which the, the absence of it is becoming more and more acute um, as, as the years go by. So yeah, that, that's our big aspiration for Karanga, I think. Lovely, and Caitlin? I guess I'd, I'd sort of um, second that with kind of two themes I think about um, in this extraordinary year. And, and one is, I, you know, if there, if there's a silver lining to the extraordinary challenges of, of education globally right now, I think it's that there has been an opportunity to universally recognize the importance of the non-academic aspects of education. And I think for anyone who's struggling at home with a child learning through Zoom school, I mean, I think you just can't help but come away from this year recognizing that successful education educates the whole child. Mm -hmm. And um, education distilled down to, you know, broadcast via Zoom is a is a poor approximation of what we would all hope for for our own children and and ultimately for every child in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a there's just a real gift for us to recognize the expansive and holistic nature of of good education, mm -hmm. um, and that that that's true for children everywhere our children and, and children across the globe. Um, and I guess the other thing I would add is that regardless of what community you find yourself in, um, it is the most vulnerable children who are left behind in this moment. And whether you know, you're in a US context and the kids from the poorest families don't have access to Wi-Fi or a tablet, or whether you're in rural Africa and you have entire communities that are untouched by formal education. Whatever corner of the globe you find yourself in, there is a community of the most vulnerable who are most excluded by the COVID pandemic. And so the opportunity for us to, on the one hand, take the value of the inward journey of this moment, the degree to which you know, parents have so much more appreciation of what it takes to educate their own children and to actually use that as a jumping off point for empathy with the most vulnerable either in your own neighborhood or halfway around the globe is, mm -hmm. is I think both the challenge and the opportunity of, of this year. I completely agree and I, I will just add that 
you know, I love the focus. I mean, I, first off, I'm going to go back and say, I agree. I hope many years from now we'll be reading that this year was a moment in history, this inflection point that really has transformed the way we view education. But I also hope that this also reverberates from a lifelong perspective. I think it is extremely important to have at the younger ages, because I think that is what will, we're gonna start to see that bringing into adulthood going forward. But I don't wanna completely miss out on adults that maybe have not had an experience like this. And I think in the workplace and in adulthood and learning throughout whatever it is that comes after, you know, um, you know, high school or whatever years we call that and above, I think that's a really important piece as well. And I, I hope we don't, we take this moment to realize that social and emotional learning, life skills, this is not only a, a one-time thing. This is a throughout life experience. So I'll just add that. Absolutely. Last no, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for joining me. Um, for the listeners, I want you to know where to find everyone. So again, just a quick reminder that Karanga is hosting all of these beautiful events this week, and you can find that and sign up for those at karanga.org. Um, social media for Karanga is at Karanga Global. Uh, Luminos Fund is luminosfund.org and social also at Luminos Fund. Caitlin Barron is available on LinkedIn and Twitter at Caitlin Barron, that's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-B-A-R-O-N. And certainly, um, last but not least, Dominic, <laughs> Dominic Register at LinkedIn and Twitter. And I'm going to spell that out, um, D-O-M-I-N-I-C-R-E-G-E-S-T-R. So want to make sure you know where to find everyone to keep in touch or reach out. Um, I think, you know, fantastic work that you all are doing. I completely agree. Let's look at this moment as, you know, collaboration, not competition. So come together. Come join our groups. Um, I think we we all can move the needle forward much better together than apart. Um, and also, I want to just thank everyone for listening in to Let's Talk About Skills, Baby. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and me, Kelly Ryan Bailey, on all the various socials. So we much appreciate you listening in, and we hope you all have a wonderful day and a wonderful holiday season.